0: Thanks, Marty. Hi, y'all quieted down for Marty. That was nice. <laughs> she said she's going to use her teacher voice, and it worked. Uh, hey, you heard you heard Marty mention it, but just to call it out one more time, February the 3rd will be at a new location. That's Goodwin-Fraser Elementary School. So uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, just make sure you don't come here. We'd love to have you at Goodwin-Fraser. That's February the 3rd, which is not too long from now. Uh, we are. If you are just joining us, first of all, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Thanks for being here, and we're uh, excited to be worshiping with you and being able to open God's Word together. We're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Mark. And we started just a few weeks ago, so we're not too far into it. If you're new, you haven't lost much time. We're in the very beginning of Mark chapter 2 now. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to Mark chapter 2. It's also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along while I read. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And he picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this piece of your word here where we get to see who Jesus is, where he gets to proclaim his real identity to us. We thank you for all of your word. It is sharp as you tell us, it pierces, it enlightens, it exposes. We need all of that this morning. We need the beauty of your word to transform us. So Lord, I ask now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do something uh, a little dangerous this morning. I'm going to let you in um, on my grooming habits. I know, it's kind of odd. Uh, I shave fairly regularly with a Mercor HD 34C safety razor. I know one of you, at least in this congregation, knows what I'm talking about. And my guess is others do as well. This is an old school, heavy duty steel razor. That, like, for 50 years was the only razor. And it houses one blade with two sharp edges on each side. is a single-blade, double-edge razor. And I also use, like, a brush and a little bowl and soap and cream that smells good. I mean, really, like, I'm that guy, okay? It's super hipster. I understand. But that's who I am. And the thing is... It's not just kind of about shaving. Once you kind of step into this world of, it's called wet shaving, by the way, which I don't know why it's called wet shaving because no one shaves dry, so I I don't know. But this world of wet shaving is more about just removing beard from your face. It's kind of a little subculture. It's like a hobby. And the deeper you get, the more that you find out is there. Like there are entire websites devoted to this kind of shaving. There are message boards and communities and people all over the world who are sharing information and talking to one another and who are bonding, truly bonding together because they all shave the same way. And like any subculture, there's always going to be some characters one of these characters lives, or at least used to live, in Austin. And when we lived there, he had a shop in downtown Austin that sold, like, cards and perfume and that kind of stuff. But it was really kind of just a front um, for what he really wanted to sell, which was his shaving gear. It felt very kind of Mafioso-like, which was totally, of course, added to the appeal. It was great. And so you'd go into this guy's shop. His name uh, is Charles. And Charles, what he really, he didn't care about any of the cards you looked at. He wanted to sell you his shaving stuff. But really what he wanted to sell you was his shaving methodology. And honestly, what he really wanted to sell you was himself. Because this guy, what had the the largest head, I think, of any person I've ever known. He claimed to have invented, I mean, multiple things in the shaving world. He literally wrote a book about shaving. And he claims to have developed this entire method about shaving, which includes, by the way, this action right here, which is shaving down. So before before Charles, everybody, I guess, shaved in circles. I don't know. He claims to have invented this action right here. And if you go and you spend just, you know, 10 minutes with Charles, which if he has his way is about a tenth of the time that you'll be there, you will come away thinking, Who is this guy like did he just walk out of a Seinfeld episode or is this a real person I brought my father-in-law in in there one time and Charles gave the whole spiel and then he ended really with this He said what you need to do is you need to go online and look at my youtube videos of which there are plenty And then he, he closed with this. He said i'm going to blow your mind I got an email from my father-in-law the next week that said, I spent about 15 minutes with Charles and his shaving videos, and I will say he did not blow my mind. You know, when you open up Mark 2, you get kind of this feeling, this question of, is this guy for real? In fact, if you've been reading through Mark at all, or if you've been here listening to our sermons, you know Mark's gospel starts out with a bang. I mean, he comes at us right like this, saying the very first words we hear in Mark's gospel is, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't ease us into it at all. He comes out and says, here's who Jesus is, you're going to have to deal with him. That's Mark's goal for us, is for us to have to deal with Jesus, to have to come to recognize who he is. And as we open Mark 2, we see this scene of Jesus healing this paralytic, and really the question for us and for all of those who are around is, is this guy for real? Is this guy really who he claims to be? Let's just kind of think through it one more time. I'm going to ask you to to imagine that you're there a little bit. Imagine that you were there, Mark tells us that Jesus is at home, it may or may not be his own home, it may be the home of Peter and Andrew, who he's recently called, and Jesus has been preaching. He's been preaching all throughout Mark chapter 1, and he's been preaching that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and we are to therefore repent and receive the gospel. And he's been preaching in a way that has this incredible power. He's been preaching in a way that nobody's ever seen before. He's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, he's been doing things that most normal people don't do. And so he's created quite a a bit of a hubbub. He's gathered a crowd. In fact, we're told all throughout the gospel there are times where Jesus just has to leave the city. He has to go out kind of into the wilderness, into the uncivilized area, just to get away from people. Well, he's back now, and he's in this house, and he's preaching. He's teaching them the word. He is there teaching them. And so many people have come to gather that there's no more room. They've crowded out even the door and nobody else can get in. And so imagine again that you're there. Maybe you're a fly on the wall here in Peter and Andrew's house. And the room is full and Jesus is preaching. It's probably pretty darn exciting. Because remember where we are in history as well. When you open up the New Testament, there's been 500 years of really relatively silence from God. There's anticipation, the promise that there's a king who's going to come. That there's a Messiah who will come and rescue God's people. And if you're a good Israelite, you've been waiting for this. You've been waiting for these rescuers, and you've been waiting, and your ancestors have been waiting for quite some time under the occupation of the Babylonians, and the Persians, and now the Romans. And you are wondering, when is this going to happen? And if there's this anticipation that maybe the Messiah has come, well, that's pretty exciting. Anybody remember the 1988 Olympic gold mining basketball team? Probably not. It was actually... The USSR versus Yugoslavia, that's who played for the gold medal in 1988, and the Soviets won. Well, in 1989, though, something pretty remarkable happened, is that the Olympic Committee decided to start to allow professionals to take part in the Olympics. And for the 1992 Olympics, the team assembled to be the United States basketball team, is what's normally called the dream team. Uh, It is what most people say is the best sports team ever put together in any sport. I mean, Jordan, Magic, Bird, Barkley, Robinson, I mean, the list goes on. Unbelievable team. I think they won those games by an average of 44 points. If you were an American in 1990, you were waiting for the basketball messiahs to show up. (laughs) To rescue us from the oppressive Soviets. And that we might actually be freed and have our rescuers here. It's the same kind of feeling. The same kind of feeling for those who are gathered in that room with Jesus. They're excited. This might be the one that God has been telling us about for a long, long time. And then in the midst of this, in the midst of what's going on here, (laughs) if you're in the room, you kind of start to hear maybe some rumbling, and then you start to see and feel little bits of rubble falling from the ceiling. And you start to look up, and there's 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 stuff coming down. And it's, I mean, again, it's a crowded room, so it's probably coming down on everybody. And at some point, you probably see daylight through the ceiling, which, if you're a homeowner, is not a pleasant feeling to see daylight in the ceiling. And the people, whoever it is, have developed a hole big enough to lower a person down through. Roofs in that time would have been flat. They would have oftentimes been places where you could go and sleep or you could work and you could kind of feel the breeze and they would have been, you know, timbers stuck with mud and straw kind of in between them. That would have been the the substance of the roof. And what's literally happening is somebody is on top of the roof and they're digging it out with a shovel. In fact, the Greek phrase is literally that they are unroofing the roof. That's what Mark tells us. And so here's Jesus in the middle of a sermon, which I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know how how you deal with the roof coming off in the middle of a sermon. But here you have it in the middle of this room that's packed and crowded and Jesus is preaching and the room opens up and there's this man that gets lowered down and he sits right down in the middle of the room. And then Jesus looks down at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now in my imagined version of this, This is where like the band in the corner just stops abruptly and somebody's drink hits the floor and mouths start to gape wide open because that is a weird thing to say. And Mark doesn't tell us what the paralytic said, but my guess is that he would have said, uh, that's not what I ordered. Actually, maybe you didn't see that I had to get lowered down here by my friends. I need something different than that. Mark doesn't tell us what he said, but Mark does tell us actually what the scribes who were gathered around said. Your translation may say teachers of the law. That's what they were. And what they start to say to themselves in their hearts and to one another is, why does this guy talk like that? Why does this man speak like that? Why would he say that to him? It's a great question. In fact, there are two parts of that question. Let's deal with them one by one. The first part is, why does he say that? to this man, why would he say to this man, your sins are forgiven? And it's odd, isn't it? It's a strange thing to say to somebody who needs healing that your sins are forgiven. But the truth is the Bible all throughout talks about physical brokenness and spiritual brokenness as being tied together, that there is actually a relationship between sin and physical brokenness and the brokenness of our world. Now, sometimes that's a one-to-one relationship, right? If somebody sins against you in an abusive way and hurts you, their sin caused you physical pain. But it's not always one-to-one either. When we learn in the Bible that God created all things good, there was harmony, there was goodness, there was peace. But sin actually broke that apart. And we can say that even the negative things that happened, such as physical pain, disease, cancer, Disasters in the world, war and strife, they all stem from this one root, which is sin. Our world is broken, and we feel the effects of that. One commentator said that physical pain is just the manifestation of the effects of the fall on our lives. They are the tokens of death at work in a person's life. I love that idea. Tokens of death that are at work in a person's life. There is a connection, a deep connection, between the way that things are and the pain that we feel about them. There's a great book uh, by a, a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga, and he's written a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He's talking about this very concept, and listen to the way that he describes the way that it is supposed to be, if you'll just listen here. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and its savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. See, what Jesus is saying here to us and to those that were gathered there is, I have come to make things right. I have come to make things the way that they ought to be. And you are seeing just the small piece of that right now. This physical manifestation of the brokenness of the world, I'm going to heal it. But really what we're talking about is something so much bigger. There's a reason why all throughout in the Gospels, oftentimes when Jesus heals somebody, he says, don't go tell anybody about it. I've always thought that was weird. I think the answer is, he knows what people are going to go say is, this is exciting, it's a healer. A healer has arrived and he can heal your wounds, he can heal your broken leg, he can heal your polio, he can heal whatever it is. And Jesus has come to do a lot more than that. Not just to put a band-aid on the problem, but to actually heal the disease. The brokenness of the world caused by our sin. He has come to heal our hearts. Secondly, the question that the scribes ask when they say, why does this man speak like that? They're not only asking, why is he talking to this man that way? But why is he talking to this man that way? They say, why is this man claiming to forgive sins? Because there's one thing that we know. Is that God alone can forgive sins. And guess what? The scribes knew what they were talking about. They are dead on right about that. God alone is the one who can uh, who can forgive sin. And this really is kind of where Jesus is looking at them and he is saying, I'm about to blow your mind. Because what he says is, just so you know that the, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal this man and I'm going to heal not only his legs and his arms, but his heart. See, Jesus is looking at those men in his actions. What he is saying is, you say that God alone can forgive sins, and you're right. And guess what? The one standing before you is he. I am God. I am the one who created all things. I am the one who knit the body together. And I am the one who has the power to forgive sins. See, the reason why this is important to us The reason why it's important that we know that Jesus is God is really because of this. It's because if he's not God, then he can't really forgive sin. Because sin, at its ultimate, uh, at its root, is against God. Now, it'd be weird if we were up here and Brian punched Tyson in the nose, and then Billy said, Tyson, or Brian, I forgive you. That would be weird. Right? It'd be weird because Billy doesn't have the ability to forgive because it's Brian is the one who has sinned. See, I don't have the ability to forgive if somebody else has been sinned against. Now, you hear me oftentimes proclaim God's forgiveness. We confess our sins and then I stand up here and I say, the Lord has forgiven you if you've confessed your sins. But I am not forgiving you. I'm simply proclaiming what is true. I'm telling you that the Lord forgives. There's a big difference. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not just telling you what's true, I'm doing the forgiving. I have the ability, the power, the authority to forgive sins. That's what I do. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, One, this is just kind of a little thing to file away maybe. Whenever you're reading the Bible, particularly when you're reading stories in the Bible, it's always a good question to ask, who should I be identifying with here? Who am I supposed to identify with in this story? So let's kind of go through the characters that are in this story. Who do we identify with? Because they all have different responses. There are the scribes, the teachers of the law, and their response is skepticism. Their response is who is this guy and what is he doing on our turf? That may be your response to Jesus today. You may be kind of standing far off thinking, I don't know about this. I got drug here by my wife or I got drug here by my parents. I'm not sure what I think about this, Jesus. Listen, let me just say, if that is you this morning, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, we're really happy that you are here. This is a place for those who are convinced and those who are unconvinced. We want you to be here. We want you to be part of our body. But let me challenge you to move toward Him. To move toward the Lord. To give up the cynicism or the skepticism and to begin to explore who Jesus is because I think that you will find that He is telling the truth. He is who He says He is. Now there are those kind of non-religious skeptics but there are a lot of religious skeptics too right that's that's actually who we find here in this chapter 2 of mark the religious skeptics the ones who have said you know what i've kind of got it all together and i've got this whole thing figured out and this idea that you are coming to give me something i need that is totally offensive to me see the scribes had built their identity they, they had they had fulfilled they had this fulfilled understanding of their identity and it was really religious and it was really churchy, and it felt like it was really some great things, and a lot of it were really great things, but they had built their identity on the things that they could do for God. They had a long list, a checklist of things, and they felt like they had them all checked off. And my identity is, I'm righteous before God because I do these things. And therefore, when somebody comes in and says, hey, here's some news, you need to be healed, and you actually need to be forgiven, well, that's going to be really offensive to me. Religious skeptics are actually a lot worse even than non-religious skeptics because we play the part, we play the games, we go to church, we put on all the trappings, but still we're standing far away from Jesus because if you don't think you need Jesus, then you are not a Christian because being a Christian is needing Jesus. All right, there's the skeptics, the scribes. Let's look at the second group. It's the crowds. We're told that there are a lot of crowds that are gathered around. And they're gathered there because there's something exciting going on. There's a preacher that they've never heard preach like this before. There is healing that they've never seen before. And what we're told is that when Jesus heals this man, that everybody gets excited. Mark tells us that they all, they they proclaim God's glory, they glorify God, but the thing that they leave saying is, we've never seen anything like this. Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that so cool? Well, that's a decent thing to say, but it's not enough. You know what they should have said? Ooh, do me next, right? That's the response that the crowd should have given Jesus. Not simply, that was really cool, but I need it as well. We can do that same thing. When we kind of say, we're gonna just, we get excited about Jesus, we're for, we're for Him, thumbs up for Jesus. We come to worship even, and we kind of play the game, and we sing, and it's, and it's meaningful even for us on Sunday mornings. And then, we decide to just kind of click the little time card back out, and Monday through Saturday, everything is just kind of back to regular. Where we don't really need Jesus anymore. He's calling us to more than that. He's calling us to engage him at deeper levels, to let him into the really dark places in our hearts, to let him into the places that we may not want him to be there, into our workplace or into our checkbook or into our thought life or into our relationships. He's calling us to engage him at the deepest levels, not simply to proclaim that something cool is going on. All right, how about the uh, the friends that bring this paralytic, this paralyzed man? We're getting a lot closer now, okay? Because these friends actually act in wonderfully faithful ways. They see what Jesus can do, and they are not going to let the crowds get in the way. They are not going to let just people get in the way of knowing who Jesus is. And they, they do everything that they can, so much so that they ruin somebody's house in order to do it. But in doing so, they come to find Jesus who He is and they bring their friend. You know, that has been done for you. If you, uh, if you were baptized as a child, your parents did this for you. They brought you to Jesus. If you have heard the good news from somebody else's lips, they have done this for you. These are the friends that have brought you to Jesus. Maybe it's good even now to just think, who are, who are the friends in my life? who have brought me to, to hear the gospel words of healing when I needed them. But there's actually one more person that I think is best for us to identify with in this story, and that's the paralyzed man himself. What the Bible says is that this is who we are. We are people without the ability to get up and run to God. We are those who are broken so badly by sin that we can't move and what we need most in our lives is not a list of rules, check boxes, things for us to find our identity in. It's not more power or more acceptance or more control or more people liking us or just the next rung on the corporate ladder. What we need most in our lives and in our hearts is for Jesus to come and to say, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. Behold, you are mine. I love you. That is what it means to be a Christian, to be brought to Jesus and to have him declare you forgiven, to tell you that you are his child. It's beautiful the way that he speaks to this man. He says, son, child, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. This is what the Lord is calling us all to today to realize the depth of our need and to turn to Jesus and to celebrate the incredible bounty of his forgiveness and healing. Let's pray. Lord, it is sometimes so hard uh, to be, to be um, reminded that our identity is to be found in this person who is broken But it is so good, Lord, to hear this, because the one that Jesus speaks kindly to is this man who is in the greatest need. The one that Jesus speaks the best words to is this man who had the greatest need, or that is us as well. Will you simply show us our need more so that we would come to see and accept and celebrate your love your grace, your mercy toward us. Lord, we do pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.